0: 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read uh, this morning verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 1, here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you've received, in which also you stand. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what also I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time. Most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have built your church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, I grant us to be joined together in unity of spirit by their teaching, that we may be made a holy temple, acceptable to you, through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns together with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. It was uh, many years ago, in a very interesting question and answer session, uh, where the great uh, Welsh Calvinist preacher of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, was uh, once asked if he thought that he had ever preached what he considered to be a great sermon. And uh, after pausing for a moment, uh, the good doctor said, yes, on two two occasions. And then he said, yet, regrettably, uh, both times I woke up and realized I was only dreaming." You see, at one moment, uh, according to him, he was experiencing uh, what he longed for, which was this capacity and this ability to communicate the Word of God uh, with accuracy, with conviction, and with power. And you know, of course, that's even more humorous of a comment when you realize just how skillful of a of a preacher that he was, able to not only accurately expound the Word of God, but to do it in such a way that it was gripping. And you know, everything seemed to turn on a dime uh, with this experience of waking up, as if jolted back into reality. He was moved from a moment of bliss, finding a sense of great fulfillment in uh, executing his calling well to the hard facts of reality that everything was taken away. And he was back to being ordinary as he understood it. Waking up changed everything. Uh, Paul is going to use a line of argument that is similar to that. Uh, as he approaches the problem of the resurrection of the body in First Corinthians 15, uh, the issue is this. He says, you have this glorious theology. You have this glorious theology of salvation through a Savior, Jesus Christ. And it not only promises salvation from sin, it not only promises salvation from divine judgment, but it also promises a wonderful eternal future in heaven to enjoy God forever and ever and ever. But you see, that whole reality, that whole hope is tied together around the concept of a bodily resurrection. And if you take that particular concept out of the equation, it's as if you pulled on the thread of a sweater only to find that that one thread caused the entire sweater to unravel. Paul says if you take this one argument out of the equation, if you take this one component out of the equation, everything changes. And that's the particular issue that is the subject or the topic or the issue at hand in 1 Corinthians 15, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's a problem. It's being challenged. You can see that in verse 12. The apostle says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Uh, now, it's a matter of great dispute, and probably as we work our way through the chapter, we'll gain more insight into the precise nature of the problem that is Uh, before the Corinthian church. But I would hesitate at this point to come down emphatically and strongly on the point that there were actual Corinthian believers who were denying the reality of a bodily resurrection. And certainly I don't believe they were denying the reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so at this point in my unfolding of this particular chapter, I would say we should be cautious on the issue of whether uh, there were Corinthians who were actually holding the position. But here is the issue. The Apostle Paul sees it as a gathering threat on the horizon. There is certainly somebody who has the ear of some in the Corinthian church who are making a very sustained case for the fact that there is no bodily resurrection. And it's probably correct... To even see it as Charles Hodge sees it, is that it doesn't matter who it is so much, what is it that motivates them? And it seems that the issue that motivates them is that the material aspect of our composition as human beings is unsuited for an eternal relationship with God. In other words, the body is an obstacle. What is material stands in the way of eternal bliss through spiritual me. And Paul sees that argument. And the reason why he begins, as he does in 1 Corinthians 15, firmly establishing and proclaiming the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, is he sees that these things are all tied together. If the body is a means or an obstacle of preventing you from enjoying heavenly joy with the Father then at the same time, you must deny that Jesus Christ rose from the dead bodily. They're tied together. To put it another way, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, is inextricably linked together with your future resurrection. We're going to see Paul makes that argument in verse 20 and following of this chapter. He says, if you get rid of one, you're going to get rid of the other. So Paul begins to work his way into this issue of the problem of the bodily resurrection of the believer by proclaiming the fact of the resurrection. And it's very interesting to note, as the Apostle does that here in 1 Corinthians 15, he links it to the Gospel. He sees the resurrection of Jesus Christ as really the cornerstone of the Gospel. Because you see... The gospel of Jesus Christ stands or falls with the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. i repeat it again. The gospel of Jesus Christ stands or falls with the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there's no bodily resurrection, there's no gospel. And Paul is going to tell you, You have his permission to go play golf or watch NASCAR or World Cup on Sunday mornings instead of going to church if Jesus did not rise from the dead bodily. It's just religion after that, and religion's a big waste of time. That's the truth. Religion is just a big waste of time. Go to Starbucks, read the newspaper, and be at your leisure. So Paul takes on this whole issue of whether there is a bodily resurrection by proclaiming the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ as gospel truth. And that's what I want to begin to look at this morning. We have two points this morning that we want to pursue. And the first one is the gospel that the apostle Paul preached. I'm going to sort of leapfrog over verses one and two to get down to the marrow. Of Paul's proclamation in verse 3 and following. And you notice here as Paul begins his proclamation of his gospel in verse 3, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That's what I want to focus on first of all, this idea that Paul received his gospel. Because as you begin to look at this particular word received and some of the attendant words in the, in the paragraph here I delivered and you compare them over against uh, the use of these words throughout the New Testament and in contemporary literature, especially among the Jews, you begin to realize that Paul is using terms and concepts which fit like a glove with the Jewish concept of tradition. They fit very closely with the entire rabbinic Jewish concept of official or authoritative church dogma and teaching. And there's a couple of things that are important about that. You can see, for instance, in Mark chapter 7, and you don't have to turn there, that this whole concept of of the authority of Jewish tradition and its transmission is illustrated in the confrontation between Jesus and the teachers of Israel. And the teachers of Israel come to Jesus and they say to Him, Why is it that your disciples don't follow the traditions of the elders? Think of a whole series of, of illustrations and, and ways in which the disciples are failing to uphold these traditions of the elders. But what you need to know from that particular exchange is that Jesus looks them in the eye and he says to them, In vain do you worship me, substituting the doctrines and commandments of men for the word of God. And you can see from that confrontation how Jesus brings it down to the fine point of the issue is He is saying you're treating your traditions as if they were on equal footing or authority with the Word of God. And indeed, that's precisely how the Jews conceived of, of religious or church dogma or tradition. It was fully authoritative. And they held that because of the nature of the instruction itself, and they held that because of the people who held the office. They saw themselves as sitting in Moses' seat. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 23, verse 2. And uh, they believed that what it is that they were teaching and imparting and passing on to uh, the covenant people was just as divine and just as authoritative as what was found in the Old Testament Scriptures. What I want us to notice here is that Paul uses the very same terminology that you would have found the rabbinical uh, scholars and teachers using. And he uses that, applying it to his own proclamation, and he's saying, now what I proclaim to you, he's using the very same words here when he says, I delivered and I received, Uh, he's using the same terminology and the same categories and the same concepts without changing the meaning. But now he's saying, yes, that that whole set of ideas applies to what I am preaching uh, because he is an apostle called by Jesus Christ. And so first of all, Paul strikes the note of authority to his teaching. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what i received now who did he receive it from that's the key who did he receive it from and and uh, if you go to Ch- galatians chapter 1 it's very clear that the apostle uh, goes to great length to defend the fact that he received his entire gospel from christ himself all of it, he says. And he, 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 he meticulously defends his argument, uh, making it very clear using a calendar and dates and names and places that he didn't receive any of it from anybody. Now, as you come into uh, the list of appearances in verses 3 and following... Uh, we might fudge a little bit on the language saying that in some of the details, it's very possible that Paul did receive some of the historical details uh, from some of the apostles. That doesn't contradict anything that he's arguing in Galatians 1 because it doesn't fundamentally alter his conception and understanding of the gospel to receive a few of the historical details of the apostles themselves. And by the way, Jesus Christ does stand behind the authority of the apostles as well. So at the end of the day, uh, everything that he proclaims has divine authority because it is directly from Jesus. But you see here, it's important authority. It's contrasting his authority with the authority of the people in Corinth who have the ear of the Christian uh, Corinthians who are denying a bodily resurrection. So he says, you have to receive this on authority. So what is it that they must receive on authority? Well, they must receive the gospel, and let's look at its parts. And the parts of the Gospel begin with the cross. Paul said, verse 3, Christ died for sins, according to the Scriptures. Christ died for sins. And it really doesn't change the meaning of the sentence at all to say that Christ died for sinners. Now, I realize that what Paul really wants to accent in 1 Corinthians 15, even within this narrow context of verses 1 through 11, is the bodily resurrection of Christ. But we need to pay some attention to this issue of this component part of the gospel. Christ died for sins. And we need to say a few things, first of all, about sin. Because if you don't understand sin, you don't understand Paul's gospel. And and one of the best places to go to understand sin is Romans chapter 3. Because there the Apostle Paul begins to wind down his argument for the fact that all are justly receiving the outpouring of divine wrath because they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. At the very end of that very lengthy argument that he makes in Romans chapter 3, he quotes a series of seven scripture verses. And it's interesting that within the range of those scripture verses, each of those Old Testament references appeals to some aspect of the human body that has been touched by sin. Whether it's the mouth, or the tongue, or the hands, or the feet. uh, Paul is sketching out a picture of humanity as being touched by sin in every aspect of our being. And so when he finishes that that chain reference of, of Scripture, Uh, quotations, he then says in verse 19, uh, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and the reason why the law is speaking in this way, Paul says, is so that all will be held accountable. If we're ever to understand the gospel, and if we're ever to understand why Christ had to die for sins or for sinners, it begins right here. Is that uh, the law of God condemns all humanity because all human beings are totally depraved in every aspect of their being, and because they are depraved in every aspect of their being, they stand justly condemned before God for their sins. And so Paul goes on in that same context to say that by the works of the law then no one will be justified. Because you're sinful, you can't bring forth a righteous work. So, therefore, you cannot be justified. Now, the other part of Paul's argument, which, or rather, uh, Paul's scripture argument, which helps explain what this means that Christ died for sins, is found in Galatians chapter 3, uh, where we are told there by the apostle that the way out of this predicament is what Jesus has done. He has redeemed us, in verse 13, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. In other words, what Paul is saying there is that Jesus uh, goes to the cross and the Father heaps upon Him all of the curse that was due for our sins. And by bearing all of that curse, He exhausts God's wrath, His holy agitation against us, and he sets us free. He sets us free from our guilt, and he sets us free from the penalty of the law. He sets us free from divine wrath. And all of that uh, theology is really compressed now uh, in these words here of 1 Corinthians 15:3 Christ died for our sins. It's really amazing how in just a few words, Paul can assume uh, this whole system of theology that would take up several volumes to adequately expound from the Word of God. But the Apostle Paul does it in sort of summary fashion here. As he proclaims the Gospel to the Corinthians, he says, I delivered to this to you of first importance, Christ died for sins. Now, it's important that he says that because it moves the narrative along towards where Paul wants to go. This is not an exposition of propitiation. It's not an exposition uh, of Christ exhausting the wrath of God uh, at the cross. It's really a part of the narrative, the gospel narrative. He died, and now notice what he says next as he moves on to the next part of his gospel in verse 4. He was buried. Now, he doesn't say much about that, does he? He just says that he was buried. If you want to find out more about the burial of Jesus Christ, you can look at... Luke twenty three fifty through 53, or you can look at John 30, uh, 19, 38 through 42. Uh, but it's really a way of saying to these Corinthians, hey, the gospel narrative makes it very clear that not only did he die, but the evidence or proof of his death is that he was buried. And if you go look at these accounts in the gospels of his burial, you can see he was dead, And he was wrapped in over 70 pounds of linens and spices. And he was handled by people, several people. You can see the names of all the people who participated in the ritual of his burial. But surely these people knew that he was dead. In fact, it was those very same people who went out to the tomb on the third day, on Sunday morning, after the Sabbath, who were fully expecting his body to still be there, who are utterly surprised. At the emptiness of the tomb and of his resurrection. They're certainly in an adequate position to testify of his death. So, this is all part of of the gospel narrative, which now focuses on the real point at hand, which the apostle wants to enforce the cornerstone of the gospel. He was buried, and then he was raised. He was raised. He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the point that Paul really wants to get after. So, uh, Paul states it here, and now he defends this central component of the Gospel, that Jesus Christ was raised the third day. And he does it by appealing to a series of witnesses. First of all, uh, he appeals to Cephas, which is Peter. And... uh, you know, you can go to the gospel accounts and see that Peter was as surprised as anybody else. Because when he heard from the from the women who had gone out to inspect the tomb and found it empty, and they reported that back to the disciples, uh, basically you uh, you get the picture of Peter uh, just shrugging his shoulders as if this was just ridiculous. So Peter was just as surprised as anybody else. Uh, He wasn't expecting a resurrection. He certainly wasn't uh, expecting Jesus to appear to him. But Paul places him first on the list. And and you see, well, why does he do that? And most likely he does that because uh, Paul is following Luke's ordering of events. So he goes from Cephas, and then we find that in verse 5 he goes to the 12, which would fit roughly the chronology of Luke chapter uh, 24. So it says he, he uh, appears to the twelve. And, and just one thing to say about that, uh, a couple of things really. First of all, the twelve, Judas has already uh, betrayed Christ and he's dead at this point. But to refer to the twelve is just a way of referring... Uh, to the group of the apostles, the people who had spent time with Jesus during His earthly ministry. But the key thing here is, if you go back into Luke's Gospel as he records this appearance to the Twelve, that uh, Jesus goes out of His way to make it clear to the disciples that He is bodily risen from the dead. Luke 24.39 says, Behold My hands and My feet. "...that it is, I myself handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have." And then verse 40, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. In other words, uh, he was able to be seen, as the Word of God tells us here in 5, he appeared, it was a visual experience... And it wasn't one that was uh, some sort of a psychedelic trip or something like that. It wasn't um, a hallucination. The apostles could really see him because he had a real physical form to him. And Luke goes out of his way to accent that. And I believe Paul is referencing that. He says, first to Cephas and then to the Twelve. It was a real uh, bodily visual experience of seeing him. And then he goes on in verse 6. Then he says he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Uh, This is uh, a reference that we just can't pin down from the Scriptures, to be honest with you. Uh, If you read the commentators or if you look in your study Bible, you'll find that people give uh, different uh, guesses to this. But the fact of the matter is we simply don't know when this occurred. But what we do know from the whole way that the Apostle Paul describes it here is that it was real, that these people are identifiable that these people are the kind of people who have a public character or persona. They are people who can be tracked down. They have an address. They can be interviewed. Because that's the whole uh, nature of the way Paul presents them rhetorically. He says, and some of them remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. It's as if he is saying to them, if you really don't believe me, you can go interview them. They saw the bodily resurrected Christ. You see, these are details. These are just simply facts that Paul says... Uh, undergird or support this preaching of the gospel, the essence of it. Christ died for sins. He was buried and He was raised the third day. So He says, 500 have seen Him. So you have Peter and the 12 and 500. And now in verse 7, He comes to James. He says, then He appeared to James and then to the apostles. Uh, Most likely here, and, and I think that we shouldn't even say most likely, this is James, the brother of the Lord. And I'm going to argue that for several reasons. First of all, notice that he distinguishes this James from the other apostles. Now, there's no reason to do that because everybody knows, based upon the lists of the apostles in the synoptic gospel accounts, that there was a James who was one of the apostles. It was James, the brother of John. In fact, we can see that he, uh, his death is prominently recorded in Acts chapter 12. Uh, that he was executed during the reign of Herod. So uh, uh, we we know this about James. We also know that at the time that 1 Corinthians 15 was written, that, that James had been dead for some time. And uh, these Corinthians, just uh, being a part of the church for the last five minutes or so, uh, wouldn't even have any connection with James at all or know any uh, have any awareness of that James. But they would have had an awareness of James, the brother of the Lord, who had a prominent position of leadership in the Jerusalem church, according to Acts chapter 15. And so they would have been aware of the fact that this very prominent leader of the church, James, was also the brother of the Lord. You can find uh, the brothers of the Lord uh, listed Uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 35 and following. And uh, we'll come back to this issue in a while. But clearly, this James is set off from and distinguished from the other apostles. And there's a good reason for that, because James was not an apostle. He was the brother of the Lord. And then it says, uh, finally, at the other end of verse 7, he appeared to all of the apostles... And uh, I think uh, we should just simply uh, see that as not another group of apostles, because uh, that doesn't make sense in view of what we know from the Gospels, uh, the rest of the New Testament, the whole concept of apostle either. Uh, It's probably just another appearance uh, to the Twelve, which uh, would have fit very well with uh, Jesus appearing uh, to the apostles uh, when he came to confirm uh, poor old doubting Thomas, right? Right. In John twenty twenty six, we know that there was a separation in time from that first initial meeting with the apostles uh, to subsequent meetings, particularly that one uh, when uh, he uh, takes his shirt off and he shows Thomas uh, his wounds from the crucifixion. And so uh, that's probably uh, the various accounts that we have listed here. And then finally, in verse eight, he lists himself last of all. As one untimely born, He appeared to me also. Last of all. And we really need to take that as it appears in uh, in the uh, New American Standard, last. Paul is saying, not least, but last. Last in a succession of appearances. That's precisely what this word means. It's the end of a category, really. And if you just want to verify that for yourself, you can notice that the same word last is used repeatedly here in chapter 15, in verse 26, in verse 45, in verse 52, and on every occasion, it means last in a series or a succession of events. You say, well, why are you making such a big deal about last versus least? It has everything to do with uh, the authority of Paul's proclamation. You see, Paul saw Jesus Christ not within the same time frame of these other apostles. These other apostles and these other sightings are all within that 40-day window in between Jesus' resurrection and the time He ascended into heaven. And you'll recall that the Apostle Paul was not an apostle during that time. In fact, he was very much opposed to Christianity. And it wasn't until at least three years later that the Apostle Paul was converted after he savagely persecuted the church, and there he met the bodily resurrected Christ on the way to Damascus. And what Paul is saying is that was the last appearance of the bodily resurrected Christ. Now, why would you accent that in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, the answer is to say, no one else has seen Him. I am the last of the kind of people that have seen the bodily resurrected Christ. What is He doing? He's burnishing His credentials and His authority. He's saying, all you people who are listening to these false teachers or whoever they are, who seem to have your ear who are saying there's no bodily resurrection from the dead. I just want to make it very clear that my authority is not like theirs. I have real apostolic authority because I was directly called by Jesus Christ and because I saw the visibly resurrected Christ in bodily form. And so he is... Placing his visual experience of seeing the bodily resurrected Christ on par with the other apostles, making it very clear he bears that apostolic authority because he's seen Christ raised from the dead bodily, and he was the last person. That means he is in a position to know about the bodily resurrection. What do we take from this, really quickly, as we move uh, before we move on to our second point this morning? And what we should take from it is our few things. First of all, credibility. Uh, you'll notice here that the way Paul structures uh, this litany of witnesses is very selective. And because if you go back to uh, the gospel accounts, what you'll see is that there's a lot more evidence within Scripture for the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's no reference to the empty tomb. Uh, there's no reference to Christ's appearances to the women. Uh, there's no references to the soldiers. There's no references to angels uh, that testify to the... Re- there's all kinds of evidence for the bodily resurrection of Christ that Paul has left out. Really what he's done is he's focused on the clergy. He's focused on the clergy. He's focused on the apostles. And I would argue the 500 are all pastors who have been called to preach the gospel. That's the reason why they were granted access to the bodily resurrected Christ. He's focused on public teachers and preachers of the word of God. People who are in a position to have seen the bodily resurrected Christ so that they would be adequate witnesses to this uh, this essential cornerstone of the gospel. And what he's saying is these public, identifiable figures can all testify to the truth of the gospel. That brings us to the second point, to authority. It's about authority. Paul is contrasting the authority of his preaching over against the authority of the false teachers who are perpetuating A false gospel of a non-material, a a non-bodily spiritual state in the future. But also what's important from this is truth. It's about truth. Notice that uh, Paul doesn't defend his gospel or commend it to be believed because he says you'll have a wonderful experience. He doesn't sell the gospel in terms of life change. He doesn't tell you that if you just accept Jesus into your life, all of your relationships will get better, and you'll have a relationship with God. Uh, What he begins with as he defends his gospel is facts, is truth, is objectivity. It's not about feelings or life satisfaction or transforming peace. It's about, did Jesus rise from the dead bodily or not? Now that seems to me the most important question of all. Because if He didn't rise from the dead bodily, uh, you just have a manufactured peace. You have a temporary satisfaction. You have pseudo-spirituality. And that you can get at Borders. There are all kinds of mystics and self-help spiritual gurus uh, who can peddle and offer you all kinds of false religion. There are all kinds of programs for self-help. There are all kinds of psychotherapeutic techniques. There are medicines that can be taken to achieve some of these states. What Paul is preaching is a bodily resurrected Christ. Everything hinges upon that. If that's not true, the gospel is not true. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, it doesn't matter who you are, you have to confront that truth. I'm told by one of my professors who had the privilege of sitting under uh, uh, Cornelius Van Til, who was the greatest apologist of the 20th century, who uh, probably uh, did more to set the whole concept of a Christian apologetics on a a philosophically coherent uh, footing that anybody in the history of the church did and I know that's saying a lot but it's true Uh, I'm told that uh, in his classes he used to say as he would speak about the resurrection of the dead he would say hmm that's interesting Uh, a dead body rose from the grave maybe we should send that in to Ripley's believe it or not well, if you're young, you don't know what Ripley's Believe It or Not is. But if you saw the show, you get it, you know. Something very interesting. No, that, he was mocking that whole idea. It's not just the, like they send around the mummies from Egypt or or these little uh, portable exhibits about the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and people pay $15 and they, they put their ducat in, in the bucket and they go by and they get to look at it and... See how fast... No, this is not one of those kinds of things. It's not like walking through a wax museum where the figures of the past who are notorious come to life apparently. If Jesus rose from the dead bodily, history is entirely changed. There's no other truth that matters. If He rose from the dead, that means everything is true. And that's really amazing. And for the Apostle Paul to stand boldly behind that truth and make that the thing with Christianity rises or falls with is a pretty daring move when anybody who wanted to could have gotten a taxi ride out to the hillside in Palestine to see if there was a dead body there I think sometimes we underappreciate this. We've heard it so often. But dead people didn't rise any more in the old days than they do today. If you told people that somebody who was dead for three days came to life, it got people's attention in a hurry. And that's going to bring us back to what we leapfrogged over, which is found in verse 2 now, which is Paul's confidence in the Gospel. Here he says, and this is the key phrase I want us to look at first of all, as we take up our second point. Paul's confidence in the Gospel is expressed in this opening phrase in verse 2, by which also you are saved. Now, just put that into standard English. What did Paul just say? He just said, the gospel saves. It's not qualified. It saves, period. The gospel saves. If you believe the gospel, it saves. There's no hesitation, there's no doubt, there's no equivocation. It saves. It's amazing that you could have such uh, categorical confidence. The question we should be asking is, why is it that the apostle has such profound confidence in the gospel? Well, the answer is in the the case that he makes in verses 3 and following. That Jesus did actually rise from the dead. And that truth changes people. And He gives us two categories of people who it does change. And I do believe that is central to His whole confidence as well. And the first kind of person that the Gospel saves is a self-righteous person. See, He's going to give us two categories of the kind of people that it saves that it really shouldn't save at all. And the first kind of person that the Gospel really shouldn't save, if it's just mere religion is a self-righteous person. And who is it that's the self-righteous person in our passage? Well, it's the Apostle Paul, the one who Jesus appeared to last of all. You see, self-righteous people aren't interested in the Gospel. They're just not. And Jesus had this problem. You'll remember that in the Gospels. And He finally looked at the Pharisees and He said, Hey, look, the healthy have not a need of a physician. You go preaching blood and righteousness and depravity and judgment and wrath to self-righteous people and what happens? Their eyes just glaze over because it's not for them. And that's Paul. Listen to how Paul speaks of himself before he was converted. Galatians 1.14 I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of the fathers than anyone else. You see, he was zealous. He was more exceedingly zealous. And because he was more exceedingly zealous, he excelled everyone around him. And everybody around him knew that Paul was exceptionally religious. He was a good person. You have the same thing in, in Philippians chapter 3, stated in an even more daring fashion. Paul says, If anyone thinks they should have confidence in the flesh, I more. circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness. And this is the one that always gets you. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Imagine that. This is how Paul conceived of himself before the Gospel, before he met the risen Christ and stared him down on the road to Damascus. He considered himself blameless. It's amazing. The picture here is of a person who's radically sold out to be the most devoted, pious, righteous, holy man in the world. And anybody would tell you, oh, you want to meet a really holy person? There is the Apostle Paul. Self-righteous. Nobody would doubt that at all. They're the last people who believe in the Gospel. Unless they're the kind of self-righteous people who all of a sudden get a case of conscience. Unless they happen to meet the resurrected Christ who stared Paul down in the sands of the Palestinian hillsides and put him right on his face So that Paul had nothing else to conclude, but this was the Lord of glory. And he realized in that instant that he wasn't righteous at all. You see, the reason why he had such deep confidence in the gospel was his conviction of the truth of the resurrection and his conviction in the fact that the gospel was true itself. Christ actually did die for sinful people. And so the gospel that Paul preached is the same gospel that Jesus preached. And it's the gospel that we ought never to get tired of. Because it's the very same gospel that saves sinful people, that saves Christians too. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He doesn't say, clean yourself up. Doesn't say, become a better person. Doesn't say, you need some life change. Doesn't say, read a few books. He says, come unto me and I will give you rest. The Gospel saves self-righteous people by convicting them of sin and showing them that Jesus Christ is an adequate, righteous substitute in their place. That's precisely what He did with Paul. The second kind of person that this Gospel saves is the skeptic. You say, well, where's the skeptic in our passage? Well, the answer is, it's the brother of Christ, James. This James was a skeptic and a doubter and an opponent of the Gospel. He was the second son of Joseph and Mary, right after Jesus. And every time you see him in the Gospel, you find him doubting Christ. John chapter 7, verse 5, we're told his brothers weren't believing him. Another episode, and you can find this in Mark chapter 3, and the other one uh, referenced in one of the other synoptics escapes me at the moment, but it's the same episode, and what you find there is that uh, Mary, his own mother, and his brothers, James and the rest, uh, were coming to find Jesus on the ministry trail, uh, to shackle him up and take him off to the mental hospital, because they thought he'd lost his mind. You'll search in vain for references in the Gospel to any of His brothers or family treating Him as if they believe that He's sane or that He's a Savior. You won't find any of His brothers even close to Him at the cross or at His burial. Imagine growing up in the same house with the Savior of the world. Yeah. Try to get your brothers to believe that. But you know, everything changed. Everything changed when Jesus came and met His brother. Isn't that fascinating that Jesus, well aware of the skepticism, the doubting, The opposition of his own brothers goes out of his way to meet them in bodily form after he's resurrected from the dead because he loved his brothers so much. He wasn't bitter at their opposition. He wasn't angry at their doubts or their skepticism. He went and found his brother. Uh, James became a leader in the church, and eventually him and his other brothers lost their life for the preaching of the gospel. Everything changed because they saw the bodily resurrected Jesus Christ. And you know, some people will say, I do have a lot of doubts, that's why I don't trust this gospel stuff. And I say, I understand that. Join the club, there's lots of people who have lots of doubts. Not all the knots get untied perfectly. Not everything gets uh, straightened up as neatly as we'd like it. Everybody ends up having questions, I think. This is an enormous, huge, huge faith. But those doubts can't, uh, can't overwhelm or drown out the truth. These skeptics, when they saw the bodily resurrected Christ, threw down their arms and their opposition. And they believed. It made all the difference in the world. You see, these skeptics were saved by the power of the gospel and of the message of the bodily resurrected Christ. So if you're struggling this morning with your faith... And there's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of reasons why people struggle with their faith after they become believers and they feel really guilty about it. It's true. We might as well just be honest. Lots of people struggle with their faith after they are saved. There are six facts here that you get to lay hold of by faith that are uh, God's divine, inspired, infallible proclamation to you that uh, are to strengthen you, that you are called to embrace. And they form the heart of Paul's defense and testimony about the resurrected Christ. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to the Twelve. He appeared to more than 500 at once. He appeared to James, his brother. He appeared then again to the apostles. And he appeared, last of all, to Paul. You see, based upon this apostolic proclamation, based upon these historical truths, you have every reason to believe in Jesus and the gospel which Paul preached, that Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, and that He rose again according to the Scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have condescended to us and to our weakness, to our fallibility, to our doubt, to our fears, to our skepticism, to our opposition, to the hardness in our hearts, by showing us, in your word, uh, the truth, the bedrock of facts upon which the gospel stands. They're not pious sentiments. They're not holy dreams. They're real. Jesus rose from the dead. And that Truth is a cornerstone to our faith. We ask, Lord, that as we have heard the truth proclaimed, that this gospel message, as simple as it is, may cut to our hearts, may persuade us of its truth, grip us with joy as we contemplate the fact that it really is true. That Jesus does say, all by himself, he is truly rest. For those who are weary, help us, Lord, to embrace this Christ by faith. Hear us for Jesus.